0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. This past week, I came across a a study on canaries. The little yellow bird, when I think of canaries, I, I think of Tweety from Looney Tunes. And it was a study on canaries. People like to have canaries as pets. Um, that's not apparently just in the cartoon. Like people actually in their houses have cages and I knew people own birds. I just never thought of the fact that some people have canaries in particular. And the reason that people like to have pet canaries is because of their their song the way they they tweet and chirp it's really uh, complex and varied and people like it it's really really beautiful and uh, what happens is sometimes someone will invest and buy a canary will bring it home and then the bird will never sing and so they're upset about this. They don't like this. I, I, want, I went to get a canary because I wanted to hear its song. And so there's like a whole world of, I, I come to find out, of canary owners that have come together to help each other. How do you train your canary to sing? So I went, I mean, I'll, Jennifer prepare. I went way down the rabbit hole on this one. Okay, like I just, I just kept clicking on canary articles. Okay, and now you're going to be subject to it. Okay, anyway. So um, there, there was a how to train your canary, and at first, like I'm reading this, and there's like canary training experts, and at first, it was pretty basic. Okay, like get your canary, put it in a cage, and you know, just know it's going to take a few days for it to get accustomed to its surroundings, and then like, you know, and they recommend at night, you know, put a blanket over its cage, so it kind of gets adjusted to like when it's nighttime it's supposed to sleep, because that's when you don't want it chirping in the middle of the night, okay, so like the basics, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But then things got like a little intense, like some of these canary owners, like they're like serious, okay? And it said, okay, and you want to make sure you put the cage of your canary, if you want it to get comfortable and sing, you need to take the cage of your canary and you need to put it in a certain room that has human activity, but not too much human activity. And I'm thinking like, I'd have just put it in the garage like I guess that's not like okay don't do that all right now I've got to rearrange my house like okay where is where's the perfect place for the canary now the canary decides where it goes like I don't put it here like okay and then it said and this is where it started to get strange it says okay and it needs to get comfortable with your presence so you need to go in the room for the first several weeks and just sit there quietly Don't make any sudden movements. And then it said, and whatever you do, don't make direct eye contact with your canary. (laughs) Okay, is this an assassin or is it a bird? Like, what are we talking about? It's like not a snow leopard that's going to attack me. Okay. Then it said, this just took me over the top. Then it said, and it needs to get comfortable with your voice. And so um, you need to speak to your canary in low tones for 15 minutes twice a day. I said, okay, I have to have a 30-minute conversation with Tweety. All right, like, I'm trying to... Ain't nobody got time for that, all right? If I can carve out 30 minutes to speak with my wife, like, that's a win, okay? Like, I can't be speaking to my pet bird for 30 minutes, okay? And after all of this training for how you train your canary, there was still even some frustration from people on these discussion chains. Like, I've done all of this stuff. Like, I'm having conversations with my canary, which is probably another problem that they have. But anyway, they're having occult conversations with their canary. And still, it's it's not singing. And so at this point, I come across this study because they're like, hey, and by the way, there's certain periods of the year that canaries just don't sing. And so there's some canary owners that have bought their canary and they're like freaking out, but that's the normal period and what's actually happening. And now some neuroscientists are weighing in and they're saying what's actually happening is during a certain period, it's like um, the summer into the fall and beginning of, of the winter, okay, where canaries are, are, they're molting and there's certain things happening in their actual annual brain development. And they've actually lost some brain cells in that process so that they don't have the capacity to sing. And in the spring, they regenerate those parts of their brain, like they get those parts of their brain back and they start singing in the, in the spring. Now there's like a canary owner here that's like, "Oh, thank goodness, like it's it's going to happen for me." Okay, like so just just relax, all right? But that I was fascinated by the fact that their singing was so tied in to like the brain, their brain development and regeneration. And it's reminded me of several of the things that we've been talking about through this series called War Songs about how tied in music is to various parts of the brain. And even in a human brain, far more than the animal kingdom. In the human brain, some of the things we've talked about is music pings off of so many parts of the human brain. It stirs up memory, it stirs up emotion, it's back and forth in the different hemispheres, like it goes to so many different places. That's why music has such a profound impact on us. And we talked about it's easy to underestimate because we kind of take music for granted. It's easy to kind of underestimate the impact that music has on us emotionally and biologically. And it's it's easy to underestimate the impact of music on humanity, but anthropologists point out that, man, you cannot find a culture of humanity that doesn't have music. It's so deeply tied into humanity. More specifically, and the purpose for us thinking and talking about this and studying this in the Bible, is that music, according to the Bible, has an even greater impact on our spirituality than we realize. In fact, um, the largest book of the Bible is a book full of songs, the book of Psalms. And so as we're studying, why is music and singing commanded in the Bible? Why is there so much of music and songs scattered throughout the, the Bible and then uh, densely in in the book of Psalms? Like, why is that so important to God? And there are ways that God works in our in our worship. And specifically as we're wrapping up this series, what we're going to talk about is there are certain seasons that we walk through where we've lost our song, so to speak. And we're waiting for the springtime of a new season to regain our song. And there's a passage that I want to share with you that talks about how to recapture your song and when to do it. For this uh, passage we're going to look at, it's, it's actually not in a psalm. We're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Chronicles. So grab your Bible, your Bible app. I want you to open to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, um, I've got to set this passage up a little bit before we jump into it. In this series so far, parts 1, 2, and 3, we've talked about a psalm. And what we've zeroed in on is the songwriter, and we've told their story. So you've got the book of Psalms it's 150 uh, psalms, and we've been looking at the various writers. So we talked about King David. King David wrote the most psalms. He wrote over 70 psalms. And we talked about what's the significance of King David as a songwriter. David was the king, the founder of the dynasty in Judah, in Jerusalem. Um, the, The kings in Jerusalem were descended from King David and the promise of the Messiah is that he would come from the line of King David why then did God pick this particular individual to start that dynasty to kind of be like um, that major king in Jerusalem why would he pick David two things about David he's a warrior and he's a worshiper and when he came to power he set up a culture of worship he invested a lot in the musical worship of his people of God's people He was a songwriter, a worshiper, and God wanted that culture to be among his people. So you've got David, the songwriter, wrote most of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. The person who wrote the second most Psalms is a songwriter by the name of Asaph. Asaph was David's worship leader. It's it's clear in the scripture, um, David named him the chief worship leader. He was a musician, he was a singer, and he was a songwriter. He wrote a dozen of the Psalms. And the thing that's interesting about Asaph, and stay dialed in on this because this is important before we go into our, our passage, the thing that's important about Asaph is he's remembered not just as a worship leader and songwriter, he's remembered as a prophet God spoke through the songs that he wrote. They saw it as their time of worship was not just a, oh, that's a pretty song and that makes me feel better right now. It was this song is for me right now. God, you're speaking through it. There's a sense of the prophetic that is accentuated in in Asaph as a prophet. The person, the the group that wrote the third most Psalms was this group called the sons of Korah. And so you've got David, Asaph, and the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah have a common ancestor that goes all the way back to the days of Moses, a man named Korah, who stirred up a terrible rebellion and almost ripped God's people apart And to stop him, God judged Korah very dramatically. And a few weeks ago, we looked at that passage. Judged Korah very dramatically. And most of Korah's household was destroyed, except for a small group of his sons. Even though they deserved death and judgment, they were spared by God's mercy. Their descendants who were ministers. They were Levites. They were ministers among God's people. Their descendants become some of the most principal songwriters in the book of Psalms. Their descendants are, and what's interesting about their Psalms is because they've experienced the mercy of God, sparing them from wrath that they deserved, we can relate to that, because they had experienced the mercy of God sparing them from the wrath that they deserved, there's something about the personality of their psalms. They are some of the most explicit and emotional in expressing their affection for God. They have psalms like the famous one As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you and your presence, O God. They just pour out this very emotive affection for God because they've experienced, and their heritage is an experience of God's mercy. You following me? These are the three songwriters in, uh, that are used principally in the book of Psalms. There's a few other, but these, those are the three main ones. With that as the setup in this series, we enter into this passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Let's take a look at verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Muonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, Engedi." Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. Okay, let's get our bearings. Let's pause there for a second. First of all, this is happening during the reign of Jehoshaphat. This is um, one of the best named kings in the Old Testament. One of my favorites. I think that's a great name, Jehoshaphat. Um, But also, he is of the line of David. He's a descendant from David. This is taking place about 120 to 150 years after David. Jehoshaphat is the great, great, great grandson of David. You have David, then you have Solomon, then you have several kings, and then his great, great, great grandson is Jehoshaphat. He is king in Jerusalem. At this point, Judah and Israel have separated the 10 tribes of the north, Judah to the south, with their capital in Jerusalem, and a Davidic king on the throne. So you have Jehoshaphat. Fat, descendant of David. Then you have these armies that have gathered up against Jerusalem. Now, it's hard to read these names and kind of get a a picture of who this is, how scary this is, what's going on. So actually, let me use a map to help describe this. Um, Check out this map. You've got, um, let's just start on the far left. You've got Philistia. That's where the Philistines live. And then you've got Judah. Right there in uh, the northern part of Ju- uh, Judah, you see Jerusalem. And then you see, next to, to that, you see the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, that's the sea. It's for the land beyond the sea. Uh, if you keep moving to the right, you see Ammon at the top. You see a little bit lower, Moab. And then you see Edom. And then down at the bottom, you see the Muonites down there. They are uh, down there at the bottom. Okay, now these three... Uh, enemies of, um, of Judah are interesting in that they're unique, whereas the Philistines to, um, that's to the, the, uh, the west there, the Philistines to the west, they are like many of the other uh, enemies of, of Israel at various points, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, and others have no relation to Judah. But the Ammonites and the Moabites are descended from Lot, Lot was the nephew of Abraham. In other words, they are related. Their ancestor in Judah, Abraham, came over with Lot many, many generations before this. Probably um, well, hundreds and hundreds of years before this. So they are kin. They're related to them. Edom to the south, which seems like they get involved as well, they are descended from Esau, which is also kin. In other words... These three armies have gathered together, they should be friendly to Jerusalem and Judah but they're not. Now they've they not only are three armies gathering, but if you look very closely about halfway up the Dead Sea, you see a little red arrow and you see a blue arrow and you see um another little dot that says Engedi. Right around there on the other side on the Judah side of the Dead Sea is the Engedi. It's not just that they've teamed up, they've already crossed around the Dead Sea and are encamped in En 25 miles away from Jerusalem. When Jehoshaphat hears what's going on, it's three on one. And some of these armies are like, they're like fearsome. Three strong armies on one. They're outnumbered. They're not just hearing, hey, they're making plans. They're already here. They're 25 miles away from Jerusalem. Like they could be outside Jerusalem within a day. Like it's terrifying and it's urgent. They could come around Jerusalem, siege around the outside, lock them in, attack them if they try to leave, or hold them out till they lose their resources and they start starving. I mean, this is a really, really terrifying. The horrors that might be waiting for them are very real. We can't underestimate that. What does Jehoshaphat do? At many other times in Israel's history or Judah's history, the king will say, oh, well, we can't fight this on our own. Let's partner with another army. So maybe they call Egypt. Hey, can you come to our aid? Or maybe, well, let's try and pay them off. We'll pay them tribute. But that's not what Jehoshaphat does. He's distinct among other kings in Judah. He calls everyone to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. He says, I want everyone to Jerusalem. We are going to fast. They're going to abstain from food. We're going to fast and pray and seek the Lord. Now just think about this before we go on. Think of how extreme this is. You got 24 hours, maybe. What are you going to do? He doesn't call another army. He says, get here as fast as you can. We're seeking the Lord. Now, there, there's armies in Ngeti. Engedi, en this is like kind of a wilderness area, but Ngeti is an oasis. It is a great place for an army to hide. There are animals there. There's trees there. There's probably date palms there. There's fresh water. You can't drink the Dead Sea. There's fresh water in this oasis of the Ngeti. It's a very large ravine. So they have marched to this ravine. They're hiding there and they're replenishing. They're getting strong. They're ready for battle. Jehoshaphat brings all of, all of Judah to Jerusalem. Like, maybe tactically the wrong thing to do. Because if they get trapped in Jerusalem, now everybody's there. It's not, hey, flee and hide. It's everyone come here. If they get sieged, now they're all locked in Jerusalem and all the entire kingdom fighting for only the resources in Jerusalem. They'll deplenish the resources even faster. On top of that, they may have a battle the next day and he has them all fast. The, the enemy's recharging. They're fasting to seek the Lord. How does this play out? Let's, let's pick this up in verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, so they're in the the temple, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and of Moab and of Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when we came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive out of your possession, which you have drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming before us. Now watch this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little little ones, their wives and their children. Now pause with me. Joshua says, I want everyone here in Jerusalem. They all leave their cities all over their towns. They come to Jerusalem and they all go to the temple. And Joshua starts his prayer. He says, You're the God of all the earth. You're not just, you don't just reign over this land, you reign over everything. That's countercultural, by the way, to his day. In his day, it would be the Moabite God versus Israel's God. But Jehoshaphat is saying something different. He says, there is one God who rules over all. We are in your hands and our enemies are in your hands. And then he says, this is your land that you gave us. And then he quotes his great, great grandfather, Solomon. He quotes Solomon when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it. And Solomon said, if ever, at the dedication, he says, if ever we're facing trouble, we will come to this house and seek your your help, and you will answer us. And Jehoshaphat says, that's the culture that you have built. That's what you have told us to do. That is what your people are supposed to do. When we're in trouble, we come into your presence. We turn towards this temple. We turn towards this place. That's what we're supposed to do when we're in trouble. And we bow ourselves before you and ask for your help. And he says, we're powerless. We cannot fight this battle. And we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And they stood there, every man, woman, and child, before the Lord, making this their prayer. Now, watch what happens next. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite, of the sons of, who's that? of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord the God of Israel with a loud, very loud voice. This is an incredible moment. Jehoshaphat has all the kingdom there in the temple. And he prays, reminding God of what the the culture that he built. Jehoshaphat, the descendant of David, said, this is what you've told your people to do. When we're in trouble, we come into your presence and we call out for help. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you. And then one of the ministers steps forward, a Levite, and he has a word from the Lord. He has a prophetic word. And what Levi, what house of Levi is he from? He's a descendant of Asaph, the prophet. And this descendant of Asaph stands up and says, there's a word from the Lord tomorrow you will go out to battle but you won't fight the battle the battle is not yours it's the Lord so do not be afraid or dismayed and at that Jehoshaphat standing in his kingly robes humbles himself and he falls down on his face his face in the dust his robes his kingly robes in the dust in humility before God and every man woman and child throw themselves down in the temple and an entire people on their faces before for God. But there's a group of Levites who can't stand it anymore. They can't take it. Everyone's got their faces to the ground as if to say, oh God, may this be a word from you. Oh God, I hope that's true. Oh God, I hope that you're really going to do this. Please, would you do that? Would that be a word from, the, from those, that son of Asaph? Would that be a word from you that you're going to fight the battle? But there's one group that can't stay on their faces any longer. It's another house of the Levites, another house of the ministers. It's the sons of Korah. And they leap to their feet. And they start shouting and they're pouring out their emotions and their cheers. And they're singing. They're singing and dancing and jumping. And I imagine slowly that Israel is all, or Judah's all standing up and they're jumping and worshiping in a a spontaneous worship service started by the sons of Korah happened there in the temple. Why? Why? Because they're worshiping in faith that if God said it, it's already done. They're worshiping in faith that the one who spoke and a universe appeared, when he speaks a word of victory over them, it's not a time of hoping and wishing it would be true. It's a time of celebration that it's already true over their lives. And they start jumping and dancing and singing and shouting and praising, pouring out their emotions. Why? Because the sons of Korah know what a saving God does. And their saving God has come to save them again. Now, I'm so glad that God chose to preserve the rest of the story. Otherwise, we might say, Man, I hope that they were saved, and, and I hope that He saves us too. You've got to hear how the story plays out, it's amazing. Let's finish the story. Pick it up in verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out Jehoshaphat stood and said, "Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established; believe his prophets, and you will be and you will succeed." And when he had taken counsel with the with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. As they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold... There were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They went three days in taking the spoil. It was so much On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel powerful can we just celebrate what the Lord did for his people unbelievable they wake up the next morning Jehoshaphat says do not fear trust what the Lord has said and they decide all the people decide with Jehoshaphat put the worship leaders in the front They put the worship leaders in the front and the army behind them. And the worship leaders start walking out worshiping. And it says, when they started singing, it's so much stronger in the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, it says, at the time, at the moment, at the appointed time they started singing, that's when God fought their battle. They start singing and marching and God stirs up these three armies against each other. Two of them wipe out Mount Seir, and then they start fighting each other. And by the time they get to the valley, they just see dead bodies. All of them were dead. Like, that usually doesn't happen. Like, usually there's, like, a few, like, that escape. Like, I mean, how does that even happen? What does that happen? It's, like, down to two guys, and they stab each other at the same time, and they both die. I mean, this is a crazy occasion. Everyone's dead. And what they do is they just walk through these slain armies and they gather the spoils. They (laughs) gather so much that by the third day, they've realized they can't carry any more. There's such an abundance of treasures. And that day they decide to name the valley Barakah, which means blessing. The valley that was going to be their battle became a a valley of blessing to them, and they carry armloads. It was more than they carried. They had to leave spoils in the valley. They come back to Jerusalem, and what do you think they did? They went right to the house of the Lord, and they celebrated and worshipped in victory. This is what it looks like for God's people to fight battles. This is the culture God was setting up. This is the purpose of it. He rises up a king, a worshiping king, to lead all of God's people into worship. And one day his descendant would do just that. The son of David, Jehoshaphat, brings all of God's people together to worship in their time of need. He has a worship leader named Asaph, who he work prophetically through God speaking through those times of worship. And the son of Asaph, on that, the descendant of Asaph at that same time will rise up and have a word for God's people of God's victory even though they haven't yet seen it. It's as sure as done. And he put these sons of Korah who knew the redemption and mercy of God that pour out all their love and affection for God because one day the descendants of Korah would rise up with a shout in celebration of something that was as sure as done. This is what it looks like for God's people to fight their battles. They worshiped through it. When did they worship? They worshiped while they waited. Even before the battle had happened, they worshiped. While they're waiting for God to do what he promised to do, they worshiped. While they waited to see what the outcome would be, they worshiped. They waited while they worshiped. They worshiped while they waited. They worshiped while they marched. They still had a wake up the next day and march out to battle. He didn't just say, hey, stay in the temple. I'll let you know when it's over. No, you're going to have to go out to battle. I want you to see it. I want you to witness it. I want you to walk in faith and encourage. But how do you walk? You walk worshiping. They worship while they marched. And then they worshiped in victory. When they saw the victory of the Lord, they came back together and worshiped. Church, Us singing in worship is so much more profoundly part of our spiritual development than we possibly think. When we sing in worship, it is tied into our battles. This is why we called this series War Songs. Because we fight battles. And this is how we fight them with our singing and our worship. Why? Why is that how we fight them? Because listen, we get so focused on the circumstances of our battle that we we think that the circumstances are vulnerable, but they're not. I don't know what your battle is. I don't know if it's financial or relational or medical or or whether it's a, an area of sin or an area of loneliness or whatever it may be. I don't know what your battle is. We get so focused on the enemy, so focused on the battle that we're like, I'm scared and I'm doing everything I can to try and get it secure. But when we turn our focus on the Lord, we were reminded, my circumstances are not vulnerable. They're safely in the hands of God. So what's the battle? It's not for my circumstances. God's got it. What's the battle? The battle is for my heart. That's the battleground. Every day of my life has already been determined. It's already written in his book before one of them came to be. So my, my circumstances are not the point of vulnerability. Where is the actual battle? The battle is there's an enemy trying to get my heart to fear and keep my eyes so fixed on my circumstances that I think that's what's vulnerable rather than knowing in my heart who my God is. He's the God over everything. He's not just my God. He's the God over everything, over every nation, over every galaxy, over all the universe. He has full control and I'm going to plant my flag in my heart and say this is part of the kingdom of God. You will not get my fear. You will not get my distraction. I will believe that this battle is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. Do you believe that, Christian? So you sing, Christian. You sing for the sake of, the, of gaining the battleground of the heart. You sing because your, your, your body and your mind and your heart are scared, but you sing and you declare what's true about God. You sing to fight the battle of the heart to fix your eyes on God. You sing while you wait for his promises to come true. You sing while you march into the battle. You, and you sing in victory when he's won the battle for you. He's going to fight. You, you fight the battle for your heart. Because he's fighting the battle over your circumstances. And he's already won. What's your battle, Christian? Some of you are walking through a financial battle right now. And you say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm doing everything I can. I keep going back over it, back over it. I keep trying to look over here, look over there. I keep keep trying to find allies over here and allies over there. And I've just got this constant drain of anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen. I have so much anxiety over my finances. Christian, you fight the battle for your heart. He's already won the battle for your finances, it's in his hands. He's got cattle on a thousand hills. And he's a providing father. Some of you, may, some of us, maybe, maybe some of us have a battle over the finances. Some of us have a battle that's raging in your heart as you're getting sucked into a political battle in this season. And you just feel the, the anxiety. Well, what if this happens? And what about this? And you see it stirring up and you see what it's doing to your heart. You're full of anxiety and hopelessness and fear and hatred. Christian, you fight the battle for your heart because he's fighting the battle for our land. It's clear in the scripture, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. You fight the battle of your heart and let him fight the battle for our city, our state, our nation, and our world because he controls all of it. Kings and queens rise and fall. Nations rise and fall by his hand. It's always been in the hands of King Jesus. So we sing while we wait and we fight the battle of our hearts while he's fighting the battle of our circumstances. Christian, some of you've got a relational battle going right now. Some of you have a, a battle. Maybe it's a battle with one of your children, and your heart's being wrung out as a children has gone astray or is estranged and you're waiting. When are you going to bring that child home? And you're saying, God, I what else can I do? And you're you're feeling guilt and shame and anxiety. And he says, listen. Your child is in my hand. I'm your father. I'm their father too. You win the battle of your heart. I'll win the battle over your child. Some of you are fighting a battle with a friend who's betrayed you and turned their back on you. Maybe you're fighting the battle of loneliness. He says, you win the battle of your heart and know that I am the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I will never leave you or forsake you. You win the battle of your heart. I'll win the battle of your friendships. Some of you are fighting a battle in your marriage and you feel the the pain and the brokenness and, and the wounds and the bitterness. He says, you fight the battle of your heart. I'll win the battle in your marriage. So you're fighting a health battle and you're saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when I'm going to find healing. Am I going to make it out of this? He says, you fight the battle of your heart and I will fight the battle over every cell in your body because I knit you together in your mother's womb and I'm holding you together. He says, you just fight the battle of your heart. I will fight the battle of your circumstances. And as we turn our attention to the son of David, Jesus Christ, and we fix our eyes on him, we'll find salvation. God's people, in this time, they came and they gathered, they were called to gather and to face the temple where the presence of God was. And we face, we face one named Jesus, the son of David, who went outside Jerusalem and fought the battle for us so that we didn't have to fight it. The ultimate king, son of David, Jesus, was hanged on a cross and paid for our sin and fought the the entire battle. And on the third day, he rose up, giving us such spoils of war from his defeat of sin and death that it's incomprehensible. And so we fix our eyes to the true King, Jesus, to the true prophet who is the very word of God, to the true priest and worship leader who connects us with God, to the true true temple who, who is the one that houses the presence of God, to the true sacrifice, the lamb who paid for our sins. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he wins the battle for our heart. And we'll watch as we walk in victory. Let me pray over us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I don't know what battle you're fighting today, but would you take a step of faith in your heart and worship while you're waiting for the victory? It will come in his time, in his way. Because he knows what's best, but he's for you. And he's gonna work all things together. But it's guaranteed. You walk in victory. You're not just a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror because of Jesus. So sing in faith while you wait. Sing tomorrow when you march into battle. And when we gather again, we'll sing together in victory. Maybe you're here and you say, look, I've I've been trying to do it all on my own. I don't even know if if I've surrendered to Jesus. I'm trying to fight the battle for my soul and my salvation. I'm trying to fight to be good enough. But Jesus won the battle. Surrender. He fought the whole battle for you. Surrender and receive Jesus as your Savior today. If that's you, let me lead you in a silent prayer. Just say, Jesus, silently right there. Say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I make you my Lord and Savior. You won the battle for my soul. I'm saved. And you'll win every battle in my life. On your terms, I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org.